happy August watchers. It is the first day of August and it just so happens to be a very immortal day. Today is the 103rd birthday of Henrietta Lacks, who you may know by the Gila Cells and the book and HBO movie, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And it is monumental, not just because it's Black Philanthropy Month, but also because today the family of Henrietta Lacks, the living family, has announced that they have reached a settlement with the multi-billion with a B dollar biotechnology company who had been using Henrietta Lacks's cells without her consent. And um, for more information for that, I'll try to put a link in the show notes. And the reason why I'm here talking to you about that today is because last year, in preparation for this season, Lady D and I did a co-produced podcast with the ladies of books and bubbles Brianna and Brittany hey ladies and we talked about the book my soul to keep by Tana Reeve Du. now originally we were going to talk about vampires and vampiric horror and when we think about vampires we think about immortality and also black women and immortality so we started asking a question what does it mean for black women to be immortal and who are some of our immortal black women so as we relaunch our audio magazines that is the topic that is the question we are talking about vampiric horror we're talking about immortality and we're talking about black women and immortality so we hope you enjoy these latest episodes as they come out they won't be weekly they should be every two weeks and we look forward to hearing from you how does immortality show up in your life are there any black icons black femme non-binary women icons that you consider immortal let us know now we are still on their site formerly known as twitter look they mama called them twitter i'ma call them twitter and we are also on ig we have our discord channels and an email so you can always send us an email at watchwithyoupod at gmail.com if you are looking for any invites to where you can find us and join our book club or come play with us on discord or find us on spill we are in multiple places so we wish you a happy happy and healthy rest of your summer we hope you enjoy these episodes and we'll see you in the stars until next time hey watchers it's lady d here and lady h is here as well oh hello we are back for another episode of Watch With You Pod, and today is a special episode because it's one of our book recordings. Mm-hmm. Lady H is going to introduce our special guest for us to talk on the book, My Soul to Keep. You are up. Okay, so last year, I reached out to the very fantastic Book and Bubbles podcast, which is hosted by Brittany and Brianna. And I said, hey, would you be interested in doing a co-created experience? Because this is an experience that we don't really know what to expect. And they graciously said yes. 
And I explained to them that season two of this podcast is going to talk about Black speculative fiction. And I asked for a recommendation. And they kindly said, you want to talk Black speculative fiction? You got to talk Tana Reeb do and My Soul to Keep. And I thank them for it. They're going to be leading the book part of our discussion. Welcome, ladies. Hello. We're so excited to be here. Hi. Hi. Well, you are meeting us. I am, you're hearing my voice for the first time. I'm Lady H and the other voice you heard was Lady D, but our watchers know us. Uh, Mainly we do talk about media, but the visual media. We dip and dabble into books, but this is your domain. And what would you like our listeners to know about your podcast and each of you? Okay, so I'm. This is Brittany talking. Um, we are sisters, <laughs> so we are actual blood sisters. And books and bubbles. Uh, I remember Brianna reaching out to me. Um, she knows I'm a reader. Uh, how can you not enjoy a good sip, uh, wine, champagne? We are all about that life. Um, and so we just blended two loves. I'm more of a traditional literature type person and she is kind of the nonfiction sciences bookie and so we just kind of came together for a great conversation um i think for me the best things about books and bubbles is how much it stretched my reading catalog i read academically all the time just for work and school but my leisure is very limited if i'm honest um and so that's kind of the brainchild brandon you want to add to that yeah absolutely so i kind of in the last three or four years realized that the only reading I do involves um, kind of my work. I work in more of a medical setting and a lot of what I do normally is clinical trials, things like that. So I really wanted to expand my reading. And so with that, I kind of took on a task of reading one or two books a month and I've always truly enjoyed podcasts. And so, you know, like Brittany said, I reached out probably been two years in the making where we sat down and talked about an opportunity to read books, but truly read books that showcase and highlight Black stories by Black authors. And so we thought this was the perfect opportunity to kind of combine those two things, you know, the love of literature and then highlighting Black authors from all over the diaspora and then combining that with Black curated bubbly. So We created this Books and Bubbles podcast we're really proud of. Um, And we have, you know, we've been going strong for over a little over a year. uh, And we're really excited to be here to kind of join you guys in our June episode. Awesome. And I can totally attest and agree to trying to find literature, specifically Black literature, Mm -hmm. that isn't academic even though I'm a firm believer in Sight of Sister and the fact that when I looked at my bibliography and a lot of the resources and so much of it was overwhelmingly white, that all I wanted to do was delve into the Zora canon and beyond. That's how I found your podcast and I'm so grateful that it exists. Um, you talk about Bubbly. What is the Bubbly for today? Yeah, thanks for asking. So we, every month we try to highlight, um, like we said, a bubbly. And so for this particular month, we were looking at a bubbly by Love Corkscrew. It's their head over heels, their sweet Riesling. So that is a black owned and operated wine company. 
Love Corkscrew not only has this sweet Riesling, but they have um, a variety of other wines. Some Total Wines do have this company available, some Targets, but you can also order directly from their website. Super affordable, uh, and they will deliver to you as long as your state is eligible. They also have a wine club where you can try multiple bottles through monthly deliveries and distribution. So our wine is from Love Corkscrew. Check them out, lovecorkscrew.com. Awesome. And Lady D, I think, is more of the wine drinker. I drink wine, but I am one of those people where you give me one glass of wine and next thing you know, I'm singing how high the moon, but yet <laughs> I can do shots, like shot, 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 shots. And I can talk to you just like I'm talking now. I don't know what it is about wine. So I'm very, wow. very limited. Yeah. When it comes to wine, but lady D, did you have any thoughts on, or have well, you tried this wine before? I have not, but I'm always down for a good wine. Good alcoholic beverage any day. <laughs> Agree. I will check that out. Definitely. All right. So you have chosen My Soul to Keep. Can you tell us why you chose it? And then I surrender to you. Okay. So when you all reached out and particularly spoke about the genre, you know, I started doing research. I read a lot of speculative fiction, but the one book that kept popping up was this book, My Soul to Keep. Um, If you kind of go on Goodreads a lot. They really don't give anything past a 3.5. That's pretty standard in Goodreads. So when the Goodreads average was a 4.5 out of five, I was like, oh shoot, this book must be good, good. So I think when you start thinking about Black speculative fiction, this is almost like one of those anchor type pieces, it seems like, as far as just like literature and fiction. And that's what really leaned us in. And I'd never read it before. It's a little older, so um, 1997, I think at its, you know, when it comes out in the height of the popularity, I had not evolved to that aesthetic yet as far as my reading. And so it was kind of like a stretch and I was like, okay, let's do this. So it really just came from the internet and it being such a raved about book and it having such an eclectic audience that believed that as well. Oftentimes, unfortunately, black and brown books, the main audience have black and brown people. Um, but I saw such a diverse audience, even like people on YouTube that were white. Stephen King writes a blurb on this book. Um, and so how well received it is across cultures and genre readers as well. Absolutely. Completely agree. So I guess we were going to go ahead and talk about some of the themes. We usually like to, depending on the kind of makeup of the book, we will either approach it where we discuss some of the primary themes um, in the book, or sometimes we'll do just discuss plot. But I think this book, it's a pretty long book and it had so many great themes that it addresses that we thought it'd be best to kind of approach it by discussing some of the primary things that stood out to us. Yes, um, definitely. So I'll kind of go through thematically. And then I'll also ask some questions. Now, did you all get a chance to read the whole book? Um, what's normally the the way you do it? I don't want to spoil if I should just talk about it in general, or is it okay if we give actual points in the book? Listen, once you warn people that, that you're <laughs> going to spoil. So when we do television shows, sometimes what we try to do is the first portion of it is to say, if you're interested in this piece of media and you're not sure if you should invest in it, here's what you may need to know to make up your decision. And then we're like, all right, we're spoiling away. 
Okay. But I did read the entire book cover to cover. Okay. And, and I read the first quarter or so of the book and then the last quarter, because once I get an idea of where a book is going, I skip. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no problem. Okay. So we can have an authentic combo. Oh, perfect. Great. Mm -hmm. So let's do this. So I guess going, maybe just going through the parts. So there are five parts of this book. The first part is called Mr. Perfect. The second part is called Spider. The third part is called The Covenant. Part four is The Living Blood. And part five is The Wizards. And so as this book kind of goes, we're building this theme. So you have this Black family, Jessica and David, are this kind of really beautiful Black couple. It seems like they're academics. She meets him in college. He's her professor. In 2022, could it be a little sketchy that she starts a date and then marries a professor by 21? Mm, I'll leave that debate up to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, they have this child, Kira. Their love seems to be really deep, and we'll kind of get into that. And as the book kind of goes on, we start to get these snapshots of David and who he is, and we start hearing different names, and it's like, what's going on? The book kind of jumps out, and he, well, we don't know it's quite him yet, and he's visiting someone in the hospital. And then she kind of ends and said, I know daddy. And I was like, daddy, what's going on? So we have a lot of different things just kind of jumping out. I will say Miss Do definitely does not like drag the story. Each part kind of unveils something more and more. So one of the things that definitely popped up, I think, are like relationships. And so just thinking about David and Jessica, and this kind of could be for anybody. Brandon, maybe you want to start it off. Do you think their relationship is healthy? For David and Jessica? So I'm do feel like um there was a dependency that they had on each other and i think as we kind of the story of david unfolds a little bit we're able to see you know where that comes from um because of his feelings of loss and you know the things that he's experienced but i do think in a way it hinders jessica because she felt really unsupported in her being super excited to write the book and having the the writing opportunity and david kind of just I guess, shooting that down and not feeling like a supportive partner. Um, and I think Jessica's family, you know, especially her sister kind of picks up on that, you know, and try to kind of encourage her through that. And I do think that some of where David's jealousy of Peter comes from, where he kind of ignites that fire, that love in her, because they're able to talk about work and current events. And Peter's genuinely excited for her to have this opportunity so I do think there are a lot of unhealthy components to it. Uh, I do think that David does have a genuine love. And like he said, he's never felt so connected, you know, to anyone in his past out that the way he's felt about Jessica and Kira. So I definitely think they're positive and, and, and negative parts. I do think some of the unhealthy pieces of the relationship tend to be come out a lot more as the book kind of gets a little deeper in. Anybody else want to add to their belief on their relationship? Did you like this relationship? I was confused by it a little. Um, okay. you, you brought up the the fact that he used to be her teacher. David used to mm -hmm. be Jessica's teacher. And he said to her, I should have just married you the first day I met you. I wasted time trying to court you or first trying to teach you and then trying to court you. And for an immortal, it just seemed 
weird that he was clocking time the way that he was. You would think that he would say, oh, we have all the time in the world, especially with someone so young. But instead, I think his her sister commented, Alex or Alexis commented that he's always been so possessive of your time mm-hmm. and where he would go and what he would allow them to do or Jessica to do. And it just seemed odd for someone who has had so much time and someone who has had so many relationships. Uh, Other than that, I think part of the question is, especially since she used the term healthy, is when the brotherhood, those searchers saw him, they were concerned that he had snapped and that he was not in a right frame of mind. And one symptom of this was the murder surrounding this relationship. So is this relationship a symptom of his sickness or is this a deep love? Because with Jessica, she is so young and it seemed like she was always struggling to break free of a lot of things from motherhood to her relationship with him and trying to balance a career. So I I didn't get some deep love at all. Uh, deep attraction, yes. He digmatized her for sure. But <laughs> that's, yeah, I, no, no deep love for me. Okay. I received that. Well, I agree. He's possessive of her time because he's lived these many lives and knows that mortal's time is short. Mm. And he wants to spend as much of it as he can with her because he knows that he's going to lose her at some point and not be able to get her back at least, you know, up to a certain point in the book. No, that, yeah. I definitely agree with that. Mm-hmm. So we do learn that David's full name is David Wald- Waldy. I think I'm saying it right. Um, AKA Dawit. So they go back to like this original name and then they also call him Seth Spider Tillis. So he's had all these names. We learned that David has had uh, multiple lovers And these lovers are almost, I would say, wives or wife-like in a sense of, you know, one was a slave woman, one was a very young girl um, who was a friend's sister, Christina. So I think maybe only actually marrying Christina and Jessica. I don't know if Adele, which was the, you know, his enslaved wife, if that would have been a, I guess, legal option in the same way. So you almost see like this evolution of who David is. So, so many different things that really come out in this book. We start off with almost his bad omen. So the book plays a lot, I think, into like spirituality, um, Mm -hmm. omens, signs. Princess dies like immediately after coming back off of a very happy time. They live in almost this like haunted space. We learn that Kira has like a foresight. Her and Jessica can kind of sense some things. They talk about the grandfather's death. So there's this darkness that kind of overlays this entire book. So it's a lot of things I feel like happening, intertwined at the same time. So I guess kind of to like help go through this book, because I I believe it's so layered. So even though this is deemed a fiction, just like a leisure read, I feel like you could teach this honestly in an academic class. It's so much in this book. But one of the questions, kind of like these discussion questions that pop up, When we start to think about David and all the things he's experienced, and you even brought this up about this idea of like this sickness, this idea of immortality in this book, do you think we see it as a blessing or a curse, this idea of immortality? I definitely see it as a curse. I mean, I think 
as we're all, you know, mortal, we kind of think of the luxuries that could be associated with immortality and, you know, not losing people that we love and things like that. But definitely looking at it from David's perspective, I definitely feel like it's a curse. If those around you that you love are not immortal, you just continue to lose everyone you love. And you see that in David, you know, in the beginning scenes when he sees his daughter. So I definitely think it's a curse. Um, and I and I do think sometimes you lose perspective on things if things last forever. Um, so I do think it creates these special moments in life when you know that things are, um, you know, transient and they, and they won't last forever. So definitely a curse. Uh, and, and David, more than anybody, you can see that in him throughout the story. I agree. I do as well. Mm-hmm. I'm still struggling with it because at the end of the book, we see that Jessica is using her immortality to cure people. Mm. So in that way, it's a blessing, but I think it can be a blessing until it is a curse. Mm. Yes, that is true. Also, immortality can be a blessing. I think one thing that comes up in this conversation, too, of immortality is this idea of um, are we only seeing it from like a flesh and bones type perspective? What becomes really interesting to me. um, So they're they're right off Biscayne and they live like there's like this cave of like limestone and Jessica feels connected because like she almost feels like her father's there and Kira at a very young age. And I, I mean, I think at least I know Southern Black culture, we often say that babies can see angels and spirits or different things like that, even pets, right? And so Kira is able to like sense her grandfather. And so he starts to tell her these stories almost like in preparation for her death. I feel like where he talks about Lynn and the dragon and you'll be with me in a few days and this is what's going to happen. And so there's a sense of immortality in that, right? Um, you think about Jessica and her family's faith and coming from like pastors, that's her lineage, and this idea of like living again, right? Um, even this, so I wonder too, does do bring up this idea of immortality, not just the way that David or Dawei or Mandu or Khaldun has it, but almost like in a spiritual plane. One of the things, and you all can comment on this too, that I found so ironic, Khaldun tells them they're drinking Christ's blood, but David has no beliefs in God in the same way. So I just thought that was so like ironic, even the way faith plays into this entire narrative. So on like one hand, you see faith is like what Jessica is clinging to, um, she prays for her baby, not to like, I think, miscarriage with Kira. And she told God, like, I'm I'm not going to play with you. I'm going to be like a real dedicated Christian. Um, you know, she marries a man who says he's atheist. But I think almost his atheism too, I don't know if he authentically believes it. So I think there are so many things that I know I brought up like a thousand things I feel just in that one moment. But I guess any commentary on like, it's, do expand an idea of immortality do you think it's ironic that they're supposed to, they drank Christ's blood, but David does not believe in God and any idea. Do you think he's just afraid to acknowledge that if God is real, then he doesn't have a soul? Very vampire like, I don't know. Yeah. So I think there's a lot uh, within that. So I think some of it, I think David has a hard time believing there could be a God with all the hurt and bad things that he's seen. 
So I think that could also be a component of it where maybe there is some faith or, or some belief that there is a God, but he almost seems like repulsed or appalled by the fact that if there is a God, how could this God allow these things to happen to you know people? Um, and I do think that some of it is also, because I think that Jessica kind of alludes to it later on where it's like, she, I think, goes back and forth about whether she wants to be immortal before it actually happens. And some of it is she feels like she's losing her soul. And I feel like she feels some relief in the fact that it doesn't happen to Kira because she's like, she doesn't want Kira's soul to be damned like hers is. And so I think it's probably a little bit of both for David, where it's like, the Christ blood thing, I don't know. Um, he even seemed unsure of it. He was like, I don't even know if he was telling the truth, but you know, he doesn't want to second guess what his kind of leader told him. But I think it's complicated for David. And I do think that there's this thought where the author kind of has us think that basically if they become immortal, they lose their soul. Um, and so I think that's what Jessica struggles with the most. And you know, at the end, she starts reading her Bible and she starts contemplating so I think it's very complex and I do think it's super interesting how she kind of tried to tie religion into this whole like immortality vampire thing, which is kind of a path that I haven't seen taken in a lot of like our typical vampire stories that we see um, that this directly tied to religion. So I don't know. I think it's very interesting. Mm, I have so much thoughts about that. Um, the first thing when you, Brittany, when you brought up how Jessica prayed for Kara in the womb. I thought about uh, the biblical story of Hannah, who was infertile and went to temple and was like praying and wailing out and was rebuked because they thought she was drunk. And when she did get pregnant, she said, I'm going to dedicate my son to God. And that was Samuel. And Samuel, he instituted the uh, the transition from like the judges to the institution of church. And I am wondering if Dawit doesn't have an issue with God as much as he does the institution of church because he knows that men are fallible, that whole feet of clay thing. Um, I don't think that he can, with, <laughs> through living those multiple lives, question the blood. Um, but I think that maybe what people claim under the blood and the and religion and religiosity, I think that may be an issue. And quite frankly, I share some of those issues where some people who claim to be people and men of God don't exactly show true love to their neighbors and for others. Um, I won't get political, I promise. The other thing, Brianna, that you mentioned about not really seeing this. Have you all heard or seen the movie Ganja and Hess? No. No, no. Never seen Ooh. it. It came out in 1974, but I wouldn't necessarily call it a black exploitation film. I can see when I was reading the book, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can just see so much of my soul to keep in Ganja and Hess, where I will swear that Do was definitely um, influenced by it. It is about a man, Hess, who became immortal after he got stabbed by 
uh, a holy instrument three times for the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And then later marries a woman, centuries later, marries a woman by the name of Ganja and makes her an immortal. They're addicted to blood, which is why they don't say vampire, but they have an addiction to blood to survive. They're always cold. They're immortal. But what saves him at the end or how he... Well, no, I won't, I won't ruin it. But uh, there's Black church imagery in the beginning and throughout the entire movie. And there's other things about husband and wife uh, where one is an immortal and then the other later becomes an immortal and the struggle between the two of them. So there are a lot of echoes between this book and that movie. And that's Ganja and Hess, 1974. I saw it on the movie channel this year. So it's around and available on your streaming services. Yeah. I have to check that out. Yes, I would definitely add that <laughs> to my repertoire of film to watch. I enjoy a classic. Amazon Prime has a lot of like throwback 70s black films. And sometimes I just binge watch. Um, some are insightful and some are absolutely ridiculous. But such as that <laughs> black exploitation genre anyway i'm just like this is not even real that this is really put out of people nonetheless speaking of movies so one of the movies we keep seeing that he loves old films i think it's really interesting that the first movie he saw was like birth of a nation and he was so disgusted it took him like five six decades to watch another movie i know i feel like do packed a lot even with the film choices one of the movies that they mentioned him watching multiple times is casablanca never really saw it but definitely looked up like a summary synopsis. And one of the main themes that seem to show up in that movie are love and sacrifice. And then the ability to do something worthwhile or intervene for others for a positive outcome. I mean, I guess we could all argue probably that this was very intentional, but are there like more connections you probably see based off like the overall theme? Do you think Do really wants us to get a message from this book? Or does she just want us to kind of speculate um, in this idea of this novel in the movie she's mentioning? Or do you think she's like, this is an intentional little hit, but I really want them to try to take this and run. How intentional maybe do you think she is with all of the movies that she drops, even like the old music? It's very interesting. The genre that she focuses on um, are very either jazz um, 20s to 40s or like literally old school black and white films. Anybody else think about that? Anybody ever saw Casablanca? Because <laughs> I know I'm not. I'm not. I've seen Casablanca a few times. But... Did you think it resonated well with this book? Did it make you think that at all? Or you just kind of like, oh, he was watching it. I, I didn't think that it made me think about this book, you know, but yeah. it, is, it is a good classic uh, movie to watch. And since he's immortal and he likes to live in the past more than the present, I can see him enjoying that over. Right. I see that. The only time I even connected it to the book, when I looked like at it thematically, but the synopsis, like the plot summary of the movie, I was just like, hmm. But then when people started pulling out themes, I was like, okay, thematically, I could see love and loss, something that he definitely is struggling with. Uh, we see David kind of evolving emotionally. Um, I think Lady H brings up this idea that does he still kind of love her or is he able to love her? I don't know if we will argue maybe David loves in his own 
kind of crazy way. Um, so two things that I thought about. So one of the questions asked, um, the life colony, the life the life brothers who drink the life blood, they definitely have a separatist mentality in this idea of, hey, we have this gift, but we definitely believe in being separated from you all. Um, we are not trying to commingle with mortals in this way. Do you think, and we kind of alluded to this, do you think that this ideology of being a separatist colony is problematic? I mean, even outside of the one moment we see with Jessica at the end, do you think that the colony is wasting gifts, talents? Do you think their perspective on humanity is flawed? Do you think it's particularly this way because they're men? I think I'd be remiss to add, like, even though they're men of color, um, quote unquote, um, the reality is there is a male patriarchal ideology. And we kind of even see that when Mandu is disgusted in the way that Jessica speaks to him. And I know a lot of it has to do with like the archaic life, you know, his life, but going back to just the colony, is it a waste? And is that perspective shifted because it's been? Yeah. I mean, I think that like, if I were to think about, you know, if we were to find people who had healing powers through blood here today and and this time what an uproar that will cause. And so I kind of get it, like it being, um, David saying it's it's dangerous. I think him thinking he's dangerous might be kind of like for multiple reasons. So some of that could just be the frenzy of the, of the masses and um, how that could turn into people wanting to do, who knows, it, it could turn into a whole lot of things from the general population. And then some of that is just backlash from, you know, the group that you're referring to, whether they have decided that they're not going to share that gift with people. Um, and then the fear that comes with the retaliation. So, I mean, I do think the gift is wasted and them just living out their lives and really not seeking out to help other people. Um, but I understand the hesitation. And I think that Jessica's decision to kind of work with those children uh, with her sister kind of also shows how, you know, maybe because she's the first woman and, and just more her deciding to make the gift or the curse or whatever, something different. Um, and, and maybe it's kind of like a repentance for her feeling like she's lost her soul and then wanting to just do something nice or, or um, for other people. Uh, so I think they, they were very specific in saying that she would be the first female there. And so it could be some of it being kind of a male ego type thing, a separatist mentality that they think they're better, you know, Kabul thinking he's kind of like a god. Uh, so I think there's a lot involved in that, but I, I kind of understand the mentality of not wanting to tell. I think, you know, for thinking about, you know, that's a pretty modern book written, what, 20, 30 years ago, thinking about somebody coming out with a gift like that and how that gift could be exploited. So I understand the fear, though, as well. In my sci-fi nerd brain, anytime somebody travels throughout time and space, the rule is always don't interfere. Live apart from, observe, but be apart. Let people, let civilizations develop and emerge as they must. 
and not without your interference, even though it's hard to watch these people suffer and toil if you know that you have answers and access, but not to because it the butterfly effect. You don't know what will happen if they don't develop on their own. So at first I was looking at it through that lens until there was, uh, when Dawit was explaining it, David was explaining it and saying that the blood must never be given to women because they may carry it in their wombs. And then I started thinking, oh, this is about control. Because if women birth immortals, then they would lose control of over who has it and how that population grows. So I wondered if this was less about, um, I, I think it was about power. So I, I really just, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm struggling with it, so I'm, I'm rambling, but I think it really was about power. And so when you said patriarchy, it was like, it's exactly what it is. Yeah, I, I definitely, oh, go ahead. You want to go Lady D? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, isn't male patriarchy pow- and power a theme across a lot of genres of books as well as our everyday life? So, you know, having it be controlled by men is something that we're entirely used to. Well, especially today. Mm-hmm. See, I said I wasn't going to get too political, but you have to. They, yeah, they roll back Roe versus Wade. Yeah, I was yeah. like, you you have to. Um, that the idea of systemic oppression automatically becomes political because it's ingrained in everything. So it's hard to overstep politics when policies amendments procedures have been in place to ensure certain people are able to move in a particular way so i I don't even really know how to have the conversation and not politicize it Mm -hmm. um i think what's really interesting too just thinking now that we're having this conversation about kyle doom like you're this deep spiritual higher plane man and i'm like how is a life of abstinence not required how are you comfortable with your followers literally going throughout centuries and having fatherless children, especially in societies of that time? Or how are you sustaining these kids by yourself? We're talking about 15, 16, 17, 1800s, where you are leaving trails. Now, I guess some of the Life Brothers have evolved and they're in a meditative state and they're not having a bunch of sex, um, but contraceptives are complex in the sense they're rare you're kind of doing pull out methods um so the chances of you having a kid even david admits like it's like as long as you don't stay too long you don't get in trouble but you're not in trouble for just having a bunch of kids i'm like wait hold on cal don't have any problem we as long as you you know you have like a what a five-year max and then you got to come back but you can have 42 kids and everybody seems to be okay with it as long as you don't get too caught up in the family. So then this perpetuation of even like fatherhood becomes very interesting to me as well, like what you get in trouble for. And that's just, I think this conversation just sparked like, Kyle Doon, you a whole mess to me anyway. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking with that. Now I'm mad. I'm mad. You, that train of thought then reminds me of the Catholic church because at first, priests and popes and cardinals and and the like they could marry Mm -hmm. and then later became the uh the verdict or the edict that said you can't choose between church and family you have to choose only one 
And that means you, if you're going to dedicate your life to God or Christ, then that's exactly what you must do. That's why they call nuns the brides of Christ. Like, no, that's what you must do. Now, meanwhile, at the ranch, that didn't stop them from having children. That's why the Catholic Church had orphanages and schools, because they had to find a place to raise their children Correct. and educate them. Yeah. And then, of course, they took out some they took some of the other children in the community, but that's where it mainly came from. And it was OK. And it was well, it wasn't necessarily spoken about, mm-hmm. but that's what they did. It's like I went to Catholic school in the 90s. And if you got pregnant, they told you, yeah, you don't raise that baby. You give it to us and we'll we'll take care of it. You don't mm-hmm. get an abortion. You weren't allowed to do that. But you gave it to us and we'll take care of it. So I was in class with like, 1998, a whole bunch of girls who were adopted. And they would have meltdowns every year when we would have this discussion because they said, I wonder if that's what somebody told my mother and that's why they didn't keep me. Oh, wow. But that went centuries. Like they said it and they didn't blink because it was like, what do you think this is? What do you think the institution is? And so like, yeah, that choice, because it's okay for you to populate the earth. We'll take care of it. We'll build a, we'll build a school. We'll build a house. We'll have the nuns rear your children, but we can't have you officially accept them, which is like Mahmoud. I may be pronouncing it correctly. He stole his son as a valet from that woman in India after she begged him not to. And then they just decided to leave him. Say, fend for himself. This is what I was thinking. I was like, wait, y'all just dropped the boy off in India. I was like, where's the support? I was like, how right. is he sustaining? He's going to mm-hmm. pretty much be like beg. I was like, this is insane. Like you said, that butterfly effect, that disruption. So going back to this idea of Jessica with the power, um, like you all commented on, the first time we see the lifeblood being used for anything productive is when a woman has it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and we only get like, a chapter of that, you know, that we get to see it. But I'm just like, what was you all's purpose besides your arrogance? You know, in a, in a way, maybe Kyle Dune and a, a couple of the brothers are the only one that had reached that higher level of consciousness. But even David was like, all y'all do is sit up and meditate all day. Like, what then is the purpose? Like, <laughs> I actually want to interact with people. Um, so it's just very interesting of what everything is used for. That first time we see like, I'm going to use this for something outside of myself because even David's idea of family and I mean, he toggles with this. It's just, it's just, just the desire that I have that's selfish, but it comes from a woman. And that in itself, I think is a very intentional conversation. Do wants us to have y'all got me thinking, thinking. Okay. <laughs> so um, another question I had, it seems like Jessica has an option to give Kira the lifeblood. And I think we alluded to this, but I guess we can explicitly say it. What has Jessica, by the time we get to this point in the book and even her growth and evolution, why not save her daughter if she then is saving other kids later? Right. I was so sad for Kira. I don't know. That part really kind of like messed me up internally that she did not live I mean I think part of it was just the whole idea that she felt like she would be damning Kira's soul by her becoming an immortal and so I guess if you think about it in that way maybe it was a selfless act from her but 
I don't know. I really, I really hated that Kira died, and I really had a hard time with that part, honestly. I think she did give Kira because we don't know if she gives Kira the immortal blood, she's gonna stay a child. We, well, in our traditional thinking, she just stay a child forever. Because generally speaking, if you get turned as a child, you stay a child. You know. Um, right. Plus, plus that giving you know that sense of weight on a child who's always going to be a child thing about interview with a vampire where everybody's pissed off that you know they turned a child into a vampire because that's a lot of weight and understanding that one doesn't have when you're 18 or younger heck hell when you're 21 and under (laughs) so then it makes me go back to like miscommunication tragedy because we see David talking to himself about his life brother who got turned at 12 and then who grew up and then stopped aging. But then I think it goes back to that tragic, like star-crossed lovers, Romeo and Juliet, because now that you bring it up, he never does have this conversation with Jessica. So she probably does not know what she's damning her child to, what type of life sentence. So then that becomes another ill of this mentality where I can't tell her, I can't trust her. And so Jessica's making a decision kind of pretty much like on her own, not knowing what's going to happen when David's kind of seen it firsthand that a child can still age, but they never ever talk about it. That's crazy. Mm-mm-mm. It is crazy. But then she willingly takes on a pregnancy where it doesn't occur to her that maybe she could be pregnant forever. I mean, so once she delivered BB, who we now know as BB, it's she was okay with it. I guess after the the loss of Kira, what was that disconnect? We talked about Lynn. We talked about the night song and uh, the grandpa in the cave. Did grandpa tell Kira? I mean, we know that he said that there's no such thing as good monsters. We know that, um, like you talked about, that they have this intuition and Kira knew things um, that she should not have known with messages that they were passed between them. That did, did that cave tell Jessica at any point in time to allow her to fly into the sun? It seemed more like it was preparing Kira. Mm-hmm. Um, the messages we seem to get from Jessica are no such thing as good monsters to protect Jessica. Maybe it's the protection because he does say hold her close and protect her kind of with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe she goes back to the conversation on monsters or not even the conversation, the whispers that her father leaves her with. Um, we know that granddad did not support the life choices of David in the sense that he doesn't say you know, he cleans it up for Kira because he sees her being upset. Like, look, (laughs) sometimes good people make bad decisions, but he tells his daughter, like, there's no such thing as good monsters. So maybe the grandfather's words help push her to this idea of like me by creating my child as a monster, there's no hope for her. So maybe that's what she was able to allude to. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I also had issue with the, I don't know. She like like you said, Lady H, how she ends up birthing this child who I don't know, I guess we don't really get a lot of thought process. I, I kind of transitions from the pregnancy and then we see the the baby, but 
you know, was there any thought on her end about, okay, is this the child going to be immortal? What her thoughts were about that? And then allowing, you know, that to happen to the, that child within her, you know, not wanting to do the same to Kira. I don't know if she later came to grips with the decision and then just kind of felt there was no alternative. Um, but I don't really understand that thought process either. I struggle with that a little bit. Because like I said, I really struggled with them losing Kira in the story. I did too. I was wondering if it was more David's penance because we start off with him killing Rosalie. We end up with him killing Kira. So maybe it's he who should not have children and not necessarily Jessica, which is interesting because throughout the book, Jessica was struggling with being a mother and David took to it strongly. Hmm. Yeah. No, that's, that's very interesting. Um, And I was wondering too, how much Jessica struggles in regards to like, okay, this is what a good wife does. The permissions she's seen, even though she tried to get Manny Black, I didn't know I was asking for permission. I was like, you kind of ask a man for permission. Um, I wondered too, I was like, well, how much have we kind of evolved? This is supposed to be like the late 90s. But I guess when I started thinking, I mean, we know systemically a lot still has to be done, but I guess the dynamic of couples have shifted too, because this idea of like not being able to do something really blew my mind. And even David was like, I'm sorry, I should be pushing you to do what you want, even though I'm about to kill your best friend. But I don't know, even their relationship, like you said, that stifled type of relationship her struggling like being a good mom her mom was able to be present in a particular way she's not you know peter's the one was like we're not going to sit up here and let you feel guilty about your mothering so i and maybe it's still an age-old question with moms you know so i just thought that was really interesting a lot of it felt a little dated for like a 2022 conversation but the reality is maybe i'm just bringing my perspective into it and maybe it's not as as you say, like even this idea of like who who should be gifted with children, who who is allowed, like who made the better parent. Um, you almost see David like recreating his family over and over till he gets it right. He uses some of the same nicknames like Duchess for the daughters. And even this connection to women is really interesting. He remembers Rufus a little bit, but there's something about the daughters and the wives that he holds on to more than any other male memory, which I think is interesting as well. I agree with that. One thing that I thought was interesting when you talk about dated conversations is how well for 1997 she talked about homosexuality with Peter and also the possibility of David having Mahmoud as a lover when he was introduced through that um, argument and the way that he dismissed Jessica in her own house where that was concerned, like, no, who is this guy, really? Um, but it was done with, with such maturity and care that that did feel time, actually not even timeless, but ahead of its time, of where they didn't devolve into stereotypes at all. So I thought, that's an interesting. I completely agree. When she was like, yes, you know, maybe he is bisexual, but as long as he's with me, I was like, okay. I said, because I don't know. 
<laughs> how my conversation would have been. That was she was so like, like you said, like her processing of it was really interesting because today that conversation probably still wouldn't feel the same in, in many spaces. I definitely noted that. Great point. I mean, it's a good framework, you know. We have to have these conversations and we've been having them for years. So, you know, she it was a good grasp on it because the same conversations are still being had today. Yeah, I totally agree, but you touched on um, kind of the I, her idea of like struggling with motherhood and um, her just thought process of, I, I think there was an internal struggle she had about whether she felt like she was putting too much in her career versus like, feeling feeling that she maybe wasn't as comfortable, you know, in her mother role as um, David was with their daughter. And I don't know, I just hate that, you know, there's so many movies I watch where it's like, the mom has to choose, right, between career and family. And it's like, one of those things where it's like, the right choice is to spend more time with your children. And I hate the conversation that as if a woman can't have both, as if a career... And self-fulfillment can also be a part of her life just as much as if she chooses to be a mother, just as much as fulfillment and motherhood. And I think there's so much like mom guilt and feeling like you're not doing enough, you're not present enough. And it's, I think really that guilt is really only intended to affect the mother, whereas the father is always, you know, there's this expectation that he's supposed to work and he's supposed to be away from home. And so I just hate that narrative that women can't be career oriented and have a supportive partner who allows them to do that. And, you know, the child feels no less. But isn't that still a reoccurring theme in life? You know, right. Absolutely. It's not just movies or, or literature. I mean, we're as women, we get thrown under the bus for wanting to have a career and children and family, however you make that up to be husband, mm -hmm. boyfriend, whatever, significant other, if you want to have, you know, more than the family, everybody's like, oh, you're throwing, you know, your family away for a career. Right. That, I mean, that's standard everyday conversation. You can only go but so far. If you go further than your career or your education is more important than having family and repopulating the world. <laughs> totally agree totally agree that same guilt those same feelings you know are happening right now and happen all the time so I do think it's interesting that Jessica kind of dealt with some of that as well and I think it goes back to our previous conversation about was their relationship healthy um to me while there's not abuse and maybe like the verbal or like physical sense it's almost like um I don't even know a word for it, but it reminds me of like lifetime or like, you know, people like list out like the symptoms of abusers and one of them is like isolating. And so she like gets a touch of her family. He's jealous of like the relationship with Peter, um, her sorority sisters. She barely goes to like chapter meeting. So when you look at the spaces where she can build and grow herself outside of him, even his concepts on like one hand is like, okay, you're immortal. You get the concept of like, she won't always be there. But at the same time, you also realize that this is her one life and you want to invade every space. It's almost like the cage bird, um, this beautiful bird. You don't want her to fly and trust that she'll return. You just want to keep her, you know, in your beautiful cage and, and watch her. 
And I, I was very intrigued by their uh, relationship. I think it's always the conundrum people have with like actually having like a pet. Like, is it better if I let them be free? Um, and I keep going back to their dynamic. I don't know. I, I feel like this is almost like a new category of abuse to me because the manner in which the way he held on to her and took away her choices and, and did not allow her. So I think abuse is always complex. I think people who have never been in abusive spaces or studied it think it's always like you're always getting bombarded with like getting beat down or getting cursed out. Or I think if abuse was that cut and dry, people would get up and leave. But because there are moments of happiness, that's what causes you to stay. Um, and so their dynamic for me, even though there are moments of love, it's still fits in like an abuse category. It gives me such lifetime vibes. It's not even funny. I don't know. So I think all that conversation goes back to that. Like you've had your book. He's like, well, I did it before I had y'all. So, you know, I'm like, because at first I thought she had to move away for the book. I'm like, wait, she just going to be traveling and you chirping? It's so many different things I had. Um, but I think anytime you start to take away choice, which is what David does at the end, it becomes so problematic. And I think it even eludes a lot of the systemic stuff we were talking about. This book is it's a lot. <laughs> it, it is. And when you brought up the pets, I thought about her cat named Tea Cake. And just thinking about when I think of Tea Cake, I think of uh, their eyes are watching God and Zora yes. Hurston. And what were they talking? Well, what was Tea Cake? He was a third husband. He was much younger, the riskier choice. But he was the one with whom Janie could really show her affection towards that was where she really felt herself was with him. Nobody else. And I'm wondering if do was trying to signal that like in that house, the cat, not husband, not daughter was where she could escape with and to, and gave her the love, affection and space that she needed because David was smothering. That's a great point. Uh, tea cake really does kind of become like her mirror um, in the sense that, you know, she's revered, but she has, to, you know, she can venture out a little bit, but she has to come back. They'll go looking for her. Tea cake's life and eternity are given without his consent. He just was in there trying to play around, you know, David kind of corners him as well. Um, so, and very much so, I guess you could say do kind of juxtaposes and parallels those characters. Hmm. And I guess the cats with the, nine lives thing too on um, that old adage hmm. this was good <laughs> uh, I guess those are pretty much like the the big heavy hitters um in the book just for any listener that might have really gotten into it this series is a trilogy what's really interesting is do takes a lot of time between each book so the next book is called The Living Blood. She doesn't write that in 2001. And then the third book, The Blood Colony, she doesn't write that in 2008. So she does not feel pressure um, to like push out these books. I definitely am intrigued. Um, looks like the next book starts to follow Jessica and this daughter and all the different things. And even the third one, I think the daughter, and I think there's a new fourth one, um, remains in those spaces. So these are definitely books you can get into. Were there any other things we didn't talk about, uh, maybe Brianna or anyone that you felt like you you just really wanted to bring up? Uncle Billy, we didn't spend a lot of conversation with. I found him to be really intriguing. He's one that kind of drops a dime <laughs> on David. Um, even the way I love the way that dude even has his wife come to get him. 
and the choice that he regrets on not going with her that moment, but saying the next time she comes. So it's almost like an omen or a premonition into his own death. And he's the one that finds the picture that David uses later. It's kind of sadistic when you think about it. So, yeah. So I guess any points we didn't bring up, any ideas of Uncle Billy or plot theme ideas you had upon reading? For me, no, I think we hit most of the major kind of themes or ideas that I had pulled out in the book. Um, there was a lot to kind of digest, but I think we hit all the the big topics. Yeah, I think we covered everything. Oh, so I'm the only one that has something, really? It's okay. Tell <laughs> us what it is. Sure, sure, sure. Sometimes my brain blanks. <laughs> It's the music. Mm. And David felt free and connected through music. And how that was one of his, the through lines throughout his life. And he was always drawn to music and the expression of it. He had to give it away after he was Spider and very much known when you brought up Uncle Billy that reminded me of the music because that was their initial connection and then Uncle Billy's downfall. But then, like you said, again, statistically, it reemerged and I think also helped him connect back to Jessica because he started playing the saxophone, not saxophone, the clarinet to her and for her. So even when she was feeling a little disconnected to him, he used it to seduce her because what did they say like, oh, you playing a clarinet makes me horny. And he's like, me playing a clarinet makes me horny too. So let's just, you know, so it was that connection point. So I think I want to ask you all, do you see any points of music and how it connected to them? And also Mahmoud said, don't give them the gift of our music. They don't deserve it. As you were talking I definitely think it's very interesting, um, even the his connection to jazz um, and then just the history of jazz as being like this culmination of culture by itself, just from an American standpoint. But as you are just now talking, I don't know, I know Brian and I have watched it. Did you all watch the new Stranger Things, the newest season? Not yet. Okay, so I won't spoil anything, but one of the things that come up um, is the idea of like music to like free you or to get you away from the villain. So the villain in there, one of the ways that they're able to get away is music. Um, and I'll leave it there. But that's what it reminded me too. So when you start to think about a lot of the darkness in David um, or even the power, music plays into that. Um, so that's what it just reminded me of, um, this idea of like him creating. Um, remember as like Life Brothers, they had a different level of knowledge Almost, so I guess Mondoon is also talking about like they have not evolved to this. You know, you have to let them be able to give. Um, I think music, and even from like a spiritual or a Christian perspective, since that's the faith that she leans into, she does some with Islam, but Christianity becomes more prominent because of Jessica. But um, when we think about, you know, in the Bible, you know, when you talk about this idea of like Satan being like the minister of music, you know, um, Christians often allude to that. Um, and so this idea of like the power of music to like influence, to boost people up, to give them prominence. David is made famous because of his prowess as a musician. So 
I think um, going to like these very spiritual, supernatural type realms, um, music definitely, I think, is intentional in that sense. And I think Duke could be saying several things about this concept of music, um, I guess. And if it was like even today's age, I wonder what David would think about where we've gone musically and did we lose, you know, the power of it. But I guess each generation thinks their music is better. But very interesting, the conversation centered around music, um, even the music that becomes lost, right? Him and Uncle Billy talk about once the record is gone, it's gone. I'm just like, wait, there's no other way to get this music. And even the music is what pretty much almost gives him the way to Jessica when he finds the record and starts playing. And she's like, I could have sworn he went to Uncle Billy's house today. So, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that was that was it for me in terms of the question. Um, Brittany and Rihanna, are we done book talk? We are done book talk. Um, Wherever you ladies want to lead us, um, we're open. Well, I want to talk about immortality and women because you brought up that point about the patriarchy and the separatists and, and would it have been different if a woman or when women are immortal. So do you know of any stories or just using your imagination? And now we have a thing to tell them, about. don't give away what you can sell now. So I don't want you to give away million dollar ideas, <laughs> but how black women fit and specifically American black women fit within the storytelling of immortals and immortality. So real life, Henrietta Lacks, um, the special that I think Oprah does it, the immortal life of of her. Um, so when I think about immortality and life giving, um, when I think about all the things we learned about like women's health and HPV and all these things from her body alone and how her story keeps going past her, even though she's robbed of that story, that's literally the first thing that pops up because literally in the title of that documentary film, I'm not exactly sure, um, they have the term immortal. So when I think about life, giving. I think about real life stories of Black women, even going back to like plantations with enslaved women. And the first gynecological studies are done on enslaved women, without anesthesia, trying to figure out about the woman's body. So when I think from a health standpoint, Black women have shown themselves to be immortal over and over again. First of all, thank you for that response. I live in Baltimore and I'm from Baltimore. Johns Hopkins has a reputation here. And that's all I'll say. Um, having said that, the second part is more or less fiction in terms of stories, like where you see immortals, whether it's like vampires in fiction, if you want to go there, Black women vampires in fiction, or however immortality for Black women in your imagination would take place or take shape. What stories are out there that you know of, or what stories would you like to be seen without going into two much detail because I don't want nobody to steal your idea now. Um, so thinking of existing stories of Black women as immortal. Hmm. I think about superheroes a lot. I mean, all that's in my head. I'm kind of a superhero fan, comic fan. So, okay, we can talk later, but yes, so am I. <laughs> so that's the first thing I think of. Um, I think from a Black woman vampire, I think about Blade's mom. If you all mm -hmm. have seen Blade, um, mm -hmm. remember she's bitten as she is pregnant with him. And of course, he rises with 
vampire-like powers. Now, I have not completed the Blade comics. I do not know if in the comic, the, it's like the movie where the mom is actually alive and she's a vampire. I think about fledgling, Octavia Butler's fledgling. Um, so this idea of immortals, um, those are more traditional vampires. I know they consider this book in the vampire genre, even though nobody's being bitten, but this idea of like immortal and the blood and being able to pass on this life source. Um, I'm obsessed with all things vampire-like anyway. Even when I think about the new Morbius movie, she's a Latinx woman. But I think just including us in these ideas of, of immortality is really important too, because then it seems like the only people with extended life don't ever look like you. So I think um, do even allowing black brown characters to have this ability becomes very powerful um, in traditional sci-fi spaces that usually doesn't exist. But now I have to think of what I want to see. Hmm. I don't know. That's okay not to know. <laughs> <laughs> you got me pondering. Okay. What about you, Brianna? As far as stories that I want to see, Yes. And I don't know that I have a great answer to that. Um, but I think Brittany, how Brittany was kind of saying how, you know, we are not always represented in those spaces where, um, you know, those immortal spaces. And, you know, as important as the story of Henrietta Lacks is, I think that she was so um, exploited and you know the entire story how I, I did not watch the movie but I'm more familiar with the story itself and how it's kind of almost flipped to make her seem like you know this triumphant thing well look what she did look what she did and it's like if you think back about the expectation of this woman who was mother of five and she her cancer cells were taken from her and then they were used um and then that story is almost kind of tried to make her look heroic and you know and being having a medicine background I just think stuff like that is so problematic and yes those cells are still used in research but to think how much hurt financially the financial gain that's come from that from drug companies and scientific researchers and to think that you know I don't know if the family got any kind of incentive or, or, or funds from that but to think of all that's come from that um, and how she was exploited, I think just kind of speaks to the fact that, especially in medicine, it's repeatedly happened and the contribution of black men and women um, in those spaces and how, you know, all the, her story has come out. You know, there's been other stories where it's not discussed and it's not talked about and how black bodies have been used in research for medical advancements and how we have not received that same kind of acknowledgement and, you know, those men and women who are involved in those things, um, you know, I just think of them suffering through that treatment to me only to be used as almost like a guinea pig. So I'm, I'm really happy that Brittany brought that up because I was going to mention her as well. But um, I guess I said that to say that, you know, Brittany's right, we're really not represented in those positive aspects. And when you think about immortality, you know, the fact that our mind goes there from an exploited woman just kind of speaks to the fact that those positive images just really aren't there. I think like Britney, I'm like a big superhero fan. So I'm also like, what I would probably love to see is like a similar 
almost like a Harry Potter type story, but I would love to see it be like a Black woman. You know, I love the Harry Potter series, and I think that Black people are completely underrepresented in the films, and I think to have something similar, I love kind of like witches and things like that, Um, to have something similar with a Black lead would be super interesting, and I would really like it. No, that's a good point, Brianna. I started thinking about um, when we did Children of Blood and Bone, um, they play a lot more on like African spirituality and like ancestors and Igbo gods and different things like that. Um, but I'm intrigued to see, <laughs> I know all the people who have read it are like, can you, girl, can you write, write this third book already? To see where those stories go, even expanding this vampire genre. Um, I mean, we have Blade, but every time we add to Blade, we still never add Black people, <laughs> Black women. Um you know, so seeing where where those stories go would be really interesting. And I think also to the point, being able to have a character that is empowered and not saying I think every good superhero or character has gone through a struggle, but not feeling that so much of the story is entrenched in the struggle. I think that's the beauty of like Black Panthers and those things like that, where you're getting a character that has, I mean, life is going to have a conflict, but the, you know, the whole story itself is not rooted in the struggle. And I think what makes other stories so intriguing is that sometimes characters have the freedom to be free. Um, And especially with Black women, we often don't get to move in a space like that. So I would love to see a story where the character had conflict, but outside of that, they are able to move in a liberated space and their whole everyday is not the struggle and the oppression and not that it doesn't exist, but we get to see the black girl magic and the joy and all of the goodness that, that is just in our everyday lives. And um, I think Hurston does that well. I know Lady H mentioned her where Hurston just tells this story and it's not from a white gaze, like the black struggles like no this is what my life was and i grew up in a black town and yeah i happen to see white people but my idea was not fixated on that it was like we had our own culture and our own community in our own neighborhood so having black women in those spaces um where it centers around them and they're not always a sidekick of something too would be an amazing insightful story i think those two would be the main things i'm not a sidekick to a man and or my entire story is not a constant struggle. Amen. Um, can I respond a little bit before I turn it over to you, Lady D? Of course. Brianna. Um, when you talked about the exploitation of, and really the martyrdom of Henrietta Lacks and the financial gain, her family did not receive compensation. They had been suing when um, the book first came out. I think her name is... Slonick or something like that. Um, she was heavily criticized for also victimizing them and making money off of them and not and not also sharing in the profits of the book and the film and the documentary and all those other things. So she created a foundation. My background's in philanthropy. That is so mad problematic because essentially what she's saying is we will decide how you get the money, who gets it, when, why, and where. So just like they took the agency of her HeLa cells, they've also in perpetuity want to do that with all proceeds. It's 
disgusting and shameful, but that's what they're doing. Um, also, have you all heard of Legend Born by Tracy Dion? No. No. It is a retelling of the Arthurian tales. It is set in North Carolina, where there's a Black girl whose name is Brianna, uh, goes by Bree. She's 16 years old, and she discovers that the Night of the Round Tables are real and that magic is real. It is a lot to do with grief. There's a 500-page epic, and the sequel is coming out in November. I'm trying not to say too much. I wrote a companion guide with it that I would share, but I can't because it's full of spoilers. And um, But we're going to do a readathon for the second book in November because it is 600 pages. But I would say that please check that out. I'm trying to think about what I can say about it. I can say this. The beautiful thing about Tracy Dion, who is a Black woman from North Carolina as well, is that she does not ignore that there are other magic in the world. So you know how white people like to act like their magic is the only magic that exists ever, forever and ever. Amen. Right. He does not do that. Not at all. Yeah, I won't say too much, but I would highly, highly, highly recommend Tracy Dion's Legend Board. Oh, I will definitely look into that. That sounds amazing. Put that on our fall list. And if you do audiobook, it is a 19-hour investment but the narrator is excellent as well and if you haven't seen the cover the cover is gorgeous it is art mm. that's the reason i'm buying books nowadays <laughs> yeah audio has completely shifted my life i'm a traditional bookie and so brianna got me into audio and i was like girl i'm not gonna listen to nobody read to me like i can't read um but it's been pretty good i will say kind of to your point the narrator kind of makes breaks the story um, even this book audio is 18 and some change. So 19 is actually not too bad and reading it in chunks. That sounds like a really great story. And to your point, I think it's so important that um, when you do open up worlds for magic, I hate that black magic is always the dark magic um, where, you know, I think often European notions of magic are allowed to be insightful and light and sprite and all of these super like you all say like harry potter type esque things and ours is like because like the only time i historically get to see magic in books growing up um what's the voodoo priestess out of new orleans marie Laveau. Uh, yes they used to show her a lot but she used to be like the only black spot in that and then you know when you study voodoo and those type of things you understand it's way more complex but the cultural notion of voodoo voodoo you know it's always dark and evil and so to allow magic to be something that's beneficial i think is important if you're going to say magic can be good then let magic be good across cultures um and historically that just has not been the case white magic becomes good and black magic becomes dark, literally. So that's some really good points. Now y'all got me thinking about books and writing books and stories. <laughs> you know, I'm trying so hard not to say too much, but I will say this. One of the reasons why I compiled this companion for Legendborn was because, I mean, not a spoiler, it is about the Knights of the Round Table. And so you have 13 names and then their lines. I mean, so it was just that, you know, that gif or that meme where you see 
the guy from his sunny in Philadelphia and he's like trying to figure everything out and it's got all these equations in a way it could be like that especially because even though I have the book I jump started reading it with the audio version and so I couldn't like flip back and say what what was that so I started doing it but when I looked things up online to see like the official guides and the wiki fandoms and things of that nature it was done by white people and white people who prioritized whiteness which i thought so this book is about a 16 year old black girl and she's not emphasized like how how her family her culture like some of the things that tracy dion lifted up was minimized so i said we're going to fix that uh i do have another recommendation and that is the perishing by natasha dion have you heard of that book no are they related I don't know, because this uh, young author has an accent over the O in her name and only one N, and okay. Tracy had two. But this one is about a Black immortal woman in 1930s Los Angeles. And um, actually, do you mind if I read it? Because that way I won't mess it up. Because I have the book, have not read it yet. Go ahead. Lou, a young Black woman, wakes up in an alley in 1930s Los Angeles with no memory of how she got there or where she's from. Taken in by a caring foster family, Lou dedicates herself to her education while trying to put her mysterious origins behind her. She'll go on to become the first Black female journalist at the Los Angeles Times, but Lou's extraordinary life is about to take an even remarkable turn. When she befriends a firefighter at a downtown boxing gym, Lou is shocked to realize that though she has no memory of meeting him, she's been drawing his face for years. Increasingly certain that their paths previously crossed and beset by unexplainable flashes from different eras haunting her dreams, Lou begins to believe she may be an immortal sent here for a very important reason, one that only others like her can explain. Setting out to investigate the mystery of her existence, Lou must make sense of the jumble of lifetimes calling to her, just as new forces threaten the existence of those around her. Immersed in the rich historical tapestry of Los Angeles, Prohibition, the creation of Route 66, and the collapse of the St. Francis Dam, The Perishing is a stunning examination of love and justice through the eyes of one miraculous woman whose fate seems linked to the city she comes to call home. So there's that book, and she's not a vampire. Mm. I don't think. She just said it more. And I was like, yes, that's, that sounds deep and intense. You know what I'm I think this book came out, I bought it last year. Yeah, it came out in 2021. Question. I know this might feel like a bad track, but as I'm thinking about these books you are talking about and even thinking about our book from today, could we argue, <laughs> even though we've talked about the patriarchy in this book, could we argue for a feminist reading? Could we do a feminist reading? Could we argue my soul to keep as a feminist text? I think inherently it has to be because it was written by Do. But I know we spend a lot of time with David and Dawid. Mm -hmm. But I think that, well, I read it through a Black feminist lens. <laughs> um, but I think that we could do that because of his critique of the brotherhood and of life 
and of history, although he was alternatively smothering and unhealthy, I think that we could argue that there is a feminist reading of this book. Okay. Anyone have anything else on that? Because I am going to ask about, I know that in our conversation, Brianna and Brittany, you guys said some recommendations, but I really want you to lay out any recommendations that you have for our listeners um, for Black media that features immortal Black women, whether Mm. that's books, television, um, movies, et cetera. Hmm. So I'm not going to assume everybody has seen this, but I'm going to jump out first with Lovecraft Country. Um, Completely obsessed. I think it still focuses somewhat, I could argue, on the men, but I think it does fare um, in the gender balance. I'm thinking particularly particularly about the episode, I want to say it's like eight. Is it Himalaya? Um, and when the mom kind of has that same conversation, as much as her husband loves her, he also kind of suppresses her um, in a time and culture where women are definitely not equal. I guess you could argue that's still happening. And she kind of goes through time and space and she comes back with power and all these different things. I think Lovecraft plays a lot with ideas of like magic and power and being able to go on. So if you have not um, completed that season, I think about, you know, Michael who passed super sad, but I, I definitely think conversations on immortality. I think what happens to um, when I think about immortality, especially from like a um, an Afrocentric lens, I think it it automatically expands to beliefs on um, the idea of it not just being like your physical mortal, but this idea of seeing life as cyclical and then being ongoing. So I think about even music by artists such as like Erica Badu, um, this idea that the next lifetime when I see, you know, I see you again, even concepts of like the way Christianity is viewed from a Black lens, um, I think it often opens this idea of connections to spirits and different things like that that intermix with mortal planes. So I start, I think when you start thinking about it from that perspective, it's not as limiting to this obvious person that's walking around. Um, oh my gosh, what is a book called? They were in the shed and God shows up as a Black woman. Oh, I feel like everybody was reading it at one point. I can't even remember, but I'm going to get the title. <laughs> I'll come back with that one. Um, so we're constantly Googling on our, on our, um, yeah, I'm so, trying to think of, yeah. I think October, Octavia Spencer winds up playing that character in the film version of it. Um, so those are the first two things that pop up um, with this idea of like being able to touch past time and space um i don't know so i guess in the traditional immortal sense i don't see it as much but maybe in a um ability to to save and to push past ideas of like mortal science then i think you see a lot more of like black women being able to do that right and to touch on like another kind of it was a limited series. Um, I know Lovecraft Country got was not renewed, but um, 
you guys have maybe talked about it before, but Watchmen with Regina King, which was also an HBO show, which I think it, it's just the one season and that's it. But I thought that was very well done. I really enjoyed the series. I think the character of uh, Regina King and how at the end she kind of transformed into this immortal figure. Um, so I don't know. I think that's a recommendation that I have. It's been probably over a year since I've actually watched this series in its entirety, but um, I really, really enjoyed that series. And I think it would definitely be a recommendation of mine to see kind of a, a, a female lead and how Regina King plays that character and how the story unfolds. I love the kind of historical, futuristic, almost um, kind of spin that they took on that where you kind of start off seeing these characters um, and these certain characters are getting reparation from the Tulsa massacre. And then that kind of unfolds into this white supremacy with the police. And so I think it really, it, it speaks to a lot of kind of current things that are going on in the culture, but they also kind of tie that into this almost superhero magical type thing. So I really enjoyed Watchmen and that would be a recommendation of mine. Do either of you have any music that you think about that showcases immortal Black women? Oh, wow. I have to think about that for a second. Hmm. Um, like I said previously, when I mentioned like an Erica Badu, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to come back to book. Previously, when I mentioned um, Erica Badu, um, I, I would argue that she does present um, an idea of immortality in the songs like Next Lifetime, Orange Moon, um, where she mentions this concept of like an ongoing life, um, being kind of reborn into something else and being able to reconnect. Um, so she's always the first person I, I think about that, that sings about these ideas of life not ending in a linear sense, how we're really taught in Western society. So that would probably be the first person I think of, and I will hold fast to the idea that um, this idea of being reborn, um, even this idea of like the spirit and how we see our lives here. I think, you know, Alice Walker, the um, Tracy, oh Lord, give me one reason to stay here. What is her last name? Chapman. Tracy Chapman, um, and some of the themes um, in, in her music also kind of play with this idea of um, reshaping the way we see mortality. Yes, the book is The Shack. <laughs> the Shack. Um, and what's the old school move show, Touched by an Angel, with Della Reeves? Remember she was the angel? Yes. Um, so those are some of like my first introductions. I would even argue, I mean, they're aliens, but even like Star Trek. Um, and, you know, those next generation type shows where you saw Black people in space with this idea of not that they were immortal, but that they were able to occupy spaces outside of like our society. I think even those are revolutionary. So I think um, Anne Rice's Aaliyah plays the role, but the vampire... Queen of the Damned. Yes. Queen of the Damned. <laughs> also. Um, definitely. I watched the movie for Aaliyah. The book was very different. 
Um, Anne Rice is very interesting. This um, dues writing is often compared to Rice. To me, it's night and day. I don't love Anne Rice. I'm sorry to hurt anybody's feelings on the line who might listen to this. Anne Rice is okay to me. Um, I know she's considered like the vampire, like goddess. To me, do does above and beyond. It could just be my own cultural bias, but definitely. So when I do think about characters like that, um, then definitely going back. How did I forget? Queen of the Damned. Um, but kind of those first ideas, I remember thinking Queen of the Damned was like revolutionary because I was like, wait, it's like a black woman vampire on TV. This does not exist. Um, using Aaliyah. Um, she's even darker than I think Rice describes her in the book. She has like a tan hint to her, but because of the time she's been dead, even though she's supposed to be Egyptian, she's pale. Um, so a lot of immortal stories, even when they do reference people who were once black immortal life, they still whiten in immortality. So the visual of Aaliyah becomes very powerful because we don't necessarily get that in the novel. So, yes, I think that's it. Because even when I'm thinking about, like, the Twilights and those different things about immortal characters, I don't think they were really Black women. So those are my first thoughts, I guess, <laughs> as I'm brain hacking. Well, I think those are wonderful first thoughts. <laughs> since since we did, we you know, we're putting you on the spot. <laughs> right. I was like, oh, it's a hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I think it's good because it, it does make you kind of reassess. Um, and I think... What becomes problematic if you're like, okay, Brittany, now name every immortal character that you know. I could name a lot. It's just when I start thinking about Black and then Black women, I think from a main cultural standpoint, it is so limited, which is so problematic. So, you know, you all are introducing us to like new topics. I mean, book titles and things like that. But I think it's so problematic because I am a reader. Brent and I, we will watch things of supernatural sci-fi capacity I, I guess you could argue like the matrix and those things like that um that scope becomes so narrow um so when you really start thinking about it out loud it becomes even more problematic that you are trudging up these almost like you're raking through thoughts like does this count does this count so it's not for the lack of immortality but it's just when people look like you when each of you said something about or gave a suggestion for black women who are immortals both of you chose something that was on HBO. And my third entry is Tara from True Blood, also HBO. It's something there I, I would say that, hmm, what does HBO know or have that these other channels need to get with? Also, in terms of music, Janelle Monet uh, brings in the cybernetic and the technological space of immortality and living on through different shapes, even though it's also, it can be dirty computers in terms of um, surveillance and control, but the understanding that through technology, the spirit lives on. She also does that. Hmm. Hey, you make me go back. I have a couple of Janelle Monet songs that um, I listen to, but I have not fully delve into her catalog so that makes um, me be very intrigued even though I'm always fascinated by her if there's an article if there's anything I'm always kind of absorbing it um, but musically I just pick and choose um, so I definitely want to go back and look at some of those themes and I totally agree about your assessment of the HBO programming I think I don't know I, I love Issa Rae and I think she 
and so many others are coming behind her with Abbott Elementary and how Black programming can be primetime television. It will be watched. And, and I, I love that Issa Rae is so uncompromising in her pursuit of like Black-focused television, her diversity on set. So I, I really agree that HBO does take a chance in programming with, with um, Black programming. And, and I think it just proves how successful it can be. So, yeah, I'm going to ramble if I say anything else. Well, if all hearts and minds are clear, Lady D's going to hit us with the benediction. Well, that's normally your thing. <laughs> so Lady H usually closes us out with her benediction. Um, and I'm going to let her do that. But before we do that, I must tell you, thank you so much for joining us, ladies. Um, we really appreciate it. We appreciate your perspective. Um, on uh, Black women and immortality. And we hoped that you will join us again sometime. No, this was really good. Um, and thank you all just even for giving us a genre stretch that we haven't necessarily done to this level um, on the podcast. I think this conversation is just a good reminder that it's important that you know we're in the room and the right people are making decisions. Um, when you think about just um, you know, speculative fiction and how it impacts and how large of a genre it is um, and how just almost a before her time do is, because now this is a much bigger conversation. But in 1997, we really didn't see this. Um, and so she was so ahead of the curve. And it just was cool to read anyway, because we're from Florida. So I pretty much knew everything she was talking about. <laughs> Lady H, are you ready? Sure. But before I do, Brianna, did you have anything you want to say? No, thank you guys so much for this opportunity. Um, I definitely enjoyed, uh, like Brittany said, we haven't really done anything um, in this area before. And so it was really great to kind of, you know, I really didn't know what to expect from the book. So it, it was great to kind of delve into some of the themes that I, and I had a great couple hours with you ladies. Thank you so much for having us. Well, thank you for joining us. Lady D really did give the benediction, but I'm just going to say amen and <laughs> seriously blessings upon you all uh, both of you for joining us and we say see you on the flip side bye bye everyone bye bye thanks for listening we invite you to send us your feedback musings puns and comments at watchwithyoupod at gmail.com on instagram twitter or facebook watch with you pod